2: Henry James loved Venice. He first saw it as a young man in his mid-twenties. Henry James had been born in America, but over the course of his life was to transition to living in England and in many ways became almost thoroughly European in his sensibilities. Much of his writing, which includes such well-known works as The Portrait of a Lady, The Americans, and Daisy Miller, deals with the blending of social culture in the years we call the Gilded Age and late Victorian and Edwardian eras in England. As James wandered through Europe on his own for the first time that year in the late 1860s, he included Venice at the end of his travels. Armed with travel guides and volumes instructing visitors on the richness of Venetian art, James perhaps didn't realize the indelible mark the city was going to leave on him in the years to come. Henry James, as those familiar with his life and work will know, had a complex and many-layered emotional and psychological life, and a full look into that would fill many episodes. Here, however, we will look at a place that over many years came to mean both life and death to Henry James, and whether exhilarating or tragic, it was a place that elicited in him the most passionate of emotions. Venice, perhaps even like Henry James himself, held much below the surface, and what the public saw were merely shadows and reflections. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, where every two weeks we journey into corners light and dark for a look at America's Gilded Age, France's Belle Epoque, and England's late Victorian and Edwardian eras. Venice has taken many writers and artists by surprise. Yes, there is a sense of a crumbling yet magnificent past, and yes, of course, there is that light reflecting off the canals and the lagoon onto the facades of century-old palaces. But perhaps, most of all, there is the sea. Venice's economic and naval history is all tied to the sea that stretches out into the ever-deepening blue from the islands scattered in the lagoon. Venice has been called La Serenissima, The serene one. And indeed, it's one of the world's most extraordinary cities. In many ways, it almost shouldn't exist at all. Built originally on crude wooden pilings crowded together, this archipelago of small islands sits in the great Venetian lagoon and is bisected by the curling, serpent-like Grand Canal. It never was, nor could it be said to be today, the easiest place to live. While he never actually lived full-time in Venice, Henry James came back again and again from what became his home in England. He became part of a rather extraordinary community of fellow writers and artists, including John Singer Sargent, James McNeil Whistler, Robert Browning, and Anders Zorn, all who found the city deeply inspiring. Along with the artists, a circle grew of expatriate Americans, in large part Bostonians, who supported these artists, patronized them, challenged them, and who often became subjects of their art. This episode tells the story of Henry James' discovery of Venice, what it meant to him, how it came to represent both life and death for him, and how he used his fiction to perhaps make peace with it all. We'll consider some of the other visitors, including John Singer Sargent and James McNeil Whistler, as well as the great American patroness of the arts, Isabella Stewart Gardner, whom we met in a show a few months ago. Isabella Stewart Gardner was so profoundly moved by Venice that she returned to the back bay of Brahmin Boston, to build a Venetian palazzo filled with treasures of her very own. Venice, in those years of the late 19th and early 20th centuries before the outbreak of World War I, became a place where those trying to find life or interpret life came to spend some time. Some came and quickly departed. Some, like James, came again and again for longer and longer periods. And some came and just never left. Venice makes her mark on those who come even today— And for many who came in that Gilded Age, many left their mark on the city, capturing it for eternity. In the 1880s and 1890s, Venice could be a city of squalor and decay, but it could be also a place of seemingly limitless, and at least for some, life. The wind picked up in gusts and whipped past my ears. It was unusually breezy for this early in the morning, but then it was approaching mid-morning after all. But on this morning, many in the hotels in Venice were still asleep, or quietly as a restorative measure drinking their coffee. It was New Year's Day, and like so many New Year's Days, it was a quiet time to recalibrate after one's revelry the night before. I had waved in the new year and promptly took myself off to bed. I had tickets to a special concert at Venice's renowned and at the time recently restored Teatro La Fenice that afternoon, and I wanted to be fully alert. I was standing on the Academia Bridge, one of the most famous bridges in Venice. It lies a bit further up the Grand Canal from San Marco and crosses over the canal to lead one directly to the entrance of the great Galleria dell'Accademia, one of the great art collections in Venice. Looking down the Grand Canal as it widens, one sees the striking white domes of the Salute at the mouth of the canal just as it empties into the lagoon. Santa Maria della Salute is one of Venice's great churches. Its name translates to health. It was built in the late 17th century during a devastating outbreak of the plague in supplication that the Virgin protect the city from further death. From where I stood, leaning on the railing of the bridge, across the canal, one can also see the low outline of the 18th-century unfinished palace where Peggy Guggenheim, the great arts patron and collector, once lived, and where visitors can browse among her groundbreaking collection today. But to my left, and one building down toward the salute, was what I really wanted to see— Staring across the canal, as they have for centuries, stood the two palazzi that together make up the famous Palazzo Barbaro. It's legendary for sure. Originally built in the 15th century, it became the center in the late 19th century of just this circle of artists and writers that I have described. It was from those windows that Henry James contemplated characters in his novels. It was coming in from those balconies that Isabella Stewart Gardner was caught forevermore in a painting by Anders Zorn. And it was in that great salon that Robert Browning recited poetry over tea, and one could imagine John Singer Sargent, who could be known to play a bit on the piano. The Palazzo Barbaro—it has its own history, to be sure— But those who became known as the Barbaro Circle in Venice at the end of the 19th century, well, they created their own history, both personal and social, right here as well. The Barbaro is in private ownership, but you may have seen it. A few lucky filmmakers have been allowed to film there. Appropriately for us today, the 1997 adaptation of Henry James' own The Wings of the Dove used the great salon where James himself was once entertained. And the elegant and sweeping 1981 television adaptation of Evelyn Waugh's Brideshead Revisited caught Jeremy Irons and Anthony Andrews as Charles Ryder and Sebastian Flight gazing at the Grand Canal from the Barbaros' balconies. Henry James first saw Venice in September of 1869, when he was 26 years old. He had yet to write his first novel, and up to this point, his literary output was lean. He had been doing a grand tour, and for a young man traveling around Europe in the middle of the 19th century, this was not a comfortable experience. His crossing of the Italian border from Switzerland required him to travel on foot through the mountains. There were, at the time, no tunnels. The Venice Henry James first saw was, as many historians have noted at that moment, a shadow of her former glory. Venice, la serenissima, the great republic, her height lay in the 14th and 15th centuries as a financial and trading capital of the Mediterranean. Great fortunes and great families grew in the city, and with that wealth came the development of great architecture and great art. Venice, as a republic, had persevered for over a thousand years. However, Napoleon's conquering forces brought it all to an end in 1787. Wars of ownership between France and Austria were fought over Venice, and when Henry James first glided down the Grand Canal in a gondola, Venice had for only three short years been part of a unified Italy. The city was in ruins in many ways, poverty in evidence, squatters in once fine old palaces, little in the way of a sustainable economy, and torn scraps of laundry hanging above one's head as one passed under them on the canals. But it was to an airless, decayed city that the wealthy British and Americans came, beginning around the time that James first made his entrance. And they came because of the art. Between 1851 and 1853, an English art historian and critic as well as philosopher and social commentator published a work that was to influence culture and society through the end of the 19th century and well into the 20th. His work was called The Stones of Venice, and his name was John Ruskin. Ruskin's philosophy and passionate commentary on the nearly forgotten Venetian Renaissance artists such as Veronese and Tintoretto, and also on the crumbling architecture of Venice, were hugely influential in much of his published work. His voluminous three-part work, The Stones of Venice, offered a social history of Venice from the Romanesque to the Gothic. He advocated for the preservation of Venice and its history, and he encouraged contemporary artists to capture its beauty. It was the fascination that this new spotlight on Venice and her treasures created that brought new travelers to find the bits of gold amidst the wreckage. Most of the British and educated Americans making Venice a destination had read at least some of Ruskin or tossed a volume in their steamer trunks and brought it along. It was on his European tour with a letter of introduction that Henry James met the great John Ruskin himself, and his influence remained central to James's early love of the city. On his first trip, Henry James stayed in Venice for only about two weeks, which, given how hard it was to travel around, was a very short stay. But he was intrigued enough to use Venice as a setting for a short story called Traveling Companions, which he published in the Atlantic Monthly in 1870 following his return to America. In a passage from the story, he clearly writes from his own experience and captures the essence of a first gondola ride. You must have learned how sweet it is to lean back under your awning, to feel beneath you the steady, liquid lapse, to look out at all this bright, sad elegance of ruin. While today it's a bit more commercial, but for James, a gondola ride was simply the only way to get around, and he became fascinated with its innate sensuality. In his 1882 essay entitled Venice, he writes, When I hear, when I see the magic name, I simply see a narrow canal in the heart of the city, a patch of green water and surface of pink as well. The gondola moves slowly. It gives a great smooth swerve, passes under a bridge, and the gondolier's cry carried over the water makes a kind of splash in the stillness. In some of his earliest non-fiction writings on Venice, he is intrigued with this new and very un-British sensation. You recline on your low cushions. You see the arching body of the gondolier lifted up against the sky. It has a kind of nobleness which suggests an image on a Greek frieze. The great palaces employed their own gondoliers just as the Astors and Vanderbilts employed their own chauffeurs and carriage drivers. One of the most important things to remember when one sees Venice today is something that has not changed for centuries. The palazzi of the Grand Canal, as well as those on lesser canals, were built to be seen and admired not from the pavement level as one strolls in front of them, but from a much lower vantage point. Their beauty, their majesty, and allure were effects that could only be understood by being seen from the water level in a gondola. Buildings that appear modest and even unimpressive take on a different grandeur as one peers up at them from farther below. Another example, that is, and always has been, that it is Venice who controls how we see her. Following another touristic visit to Venice, this time accompanied by his sister and aunt, a period of nine years passed before James again experienced the city. It was on his visit of 1881 that something significant happened. Henry James fell in love. Henry James returned to Venice for what was to become an extended period of time, arriving in March and staying on until July. It was on this trip that Venice had worked its way into his soul, and he wrote that he had fallen deeply and desperately in love with it. I have been there twice before, but each time only for a few days. This time I have drunk deeply and the magic potion has entered my blood. In love with Venice, though he was, he was clear on its reality as well, and in one of his essays he characterizes Venice as a vast museum, a battered peep show and bazaar, the city of the doges reduced to earning its living as a curiosity shop. James rented rooms overlooking the lagoon with a full view of the great Palladian church of San Giorgio Maggiore on its own island in the center of the lagoon. If you'd like to see the view as James saw it, the once shabby former inn that held his rented rooms exists today in a renovated and much more upscale state as the Hotel Paganelli. James had come to Venice to rest and to write. His daily routine included a salt water bath following his breakfast, a stroll through the city, a work session back in his rooms, perhaps lunching late at Quadri in San Marco, or adding in a gondola ride before writing a bit more, then returning to Piazza San Marco in the evenings to sit at Florian to listen to the live orchestra under the summer stars. Days were spent taking in every detail of the great mosaics in San Marco and the great tableaux of Tintoretto and Veronese in the Doge's Palace. James came to feel that Tintoretto was the greatest of all Venetian Renaissance artists. When in his room at work, he also continued his progress each day on what some consider was his finest novel, The Portrait of a Lady, published later that year. One of the quintessential experiences in Venice, which has not changed since the days when James did exactly the same thing, is to pay a visit to the Café Quadri or, across the Piazza San Marco, the Café Florian. Florian opened just where it is today in 1720. The coffee house, with its original layout and gilt interior decoration and its small labyrinth of mirrored rooms, is the very same one where Casanova, Byron, Marcel Proust, Charles Dickens, and James himself all smoked, drank, wrote letters, talked about art, talked about each other, and watched the world. Indeed, I remember a particular evening when I myself ended up at Florian with some friends when we resorted to late-night coffee and gelato since we had somehow missed our curtain time for the opera. Quadri, across the piazza, opened in 1775 as America was about to launch into a revolution, and like Florian, it still welcomes visitors today. During the years before the unification of Italy, when Austria held Venice, the red and white coats of the Austrian soldiers were regularly seen at Quadri's tables. Both Florian and Quadri had their loyalists, and it told the world a lot about your character by which one you chose to patronize. James did not always spend his days alone. He often enjoyed the company of an American, Herbert Pratt, who seemingly had no job to worry about and was free to enjoy long lunches at Florian or extended walks with Henry discovering hidden art in the corners of the city. Biographers and historians have noted that James battled deep challenges both financial and emotional at many times throughout his life. One biographer has suggested that these moments of spontaneous fun with the apparently unfettered Pratt among the canals of Venice did Henry a great deal of good. And with that, I'm going to take a short break, but I'll be back to continue our story.
0: You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first class luxury meets world class drama. A new season of The Kardashians, starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu.
1: If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay, when the truth is,
2: I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. Henry James' visit that year of 1881 served as well as the beginning of his entrance into the circle of Americans and other international visitors who were gradually taking up residence in entire palazzi along the Grand Canal. Their Italian owners were more than willing to rent to foreigners with ready cash and who often seemed to want to escape from something. The Americans who grounded this expatriate community were a New Yorker and two Bostonians. Mrs. Catherine Decay Bronson and the deeply influential couple Daniel and Ariana Curtis, who, it must be noted, rented and then outright bought the Palazzo Barbaro. But first, to Catherine Bronson. Henry had met Mrs. Bronson about six years before aboard ship on a particularly unsettling Atlantic crossing and subsequently knew her slightly from Newport. Catherine Decay Bronson was born into a prominent New York family whose distant relatives included the painter James McNeill Whistler. Mrs. Bronson, with her husband Arthur and daughter Edith, left New York behind and had taken up residence for good at an available palazzo directly across from the Salute, and they opened their doors to the literary and artistic visitors drifting into the city. Mr. Bronson seems at one point to have left for Paris, and little mention of him after that is ever made, leaving Mrs. Bronson and Edith to entertain Venice. Instead of remaining an aloof expatriate, Catherine Bronson immersed herself in Venetian life from learning the local dialect and befriending gondoliers to advocating for better living conditions for Venice's poorest families. Mrs. Bronson was deeply hospitable to the transient Americans and Brits and she became a close friend of Henry's. He was invited to dine at her small but elegant enough palazzo called the Calvisi several times a week during his stays. Henry described an evening at Mrs. Bronson's as a moment of perfect happiness and contentment. While taking in the view from her balconies, it was a perfect moment, he wrote, with your elbows on the broad ledge, a cigarette in your teeth, and a little good company beside you. When Henry returned to Venice for a visit in 1887, he took up rooms with the Bronsons for his winter stay. Modestly elegant though these accommodations were, James remained fussy and cranky as the result of the chill, the damp, and the often inclement weather. Despite the uncomfortable conditions with the Bronsons, he made the acquaintance of the Curtises, a couple far more central to our story. Daniel Curtis and his English-born wife Ariana were Bostonians, and along with their son Ralph, an aspiring painter, had taken up residence permanently in Venice beginning in 1881 when they arrived in July. They were more than glad to leave American shores behind. There are various versions to this story, as there are to any like this, but it seems Mr. Curtis had allegedly assaulted a passenger on a Boston streetcar in an attempt to defend his wife. The assaulted gentleman was in fact a judge, and the incident led to a trial, conviction, and a period for a couple of months in prison for Daniel Curtis. Upon his release, he vowed to take his family, leave America, and begin all over again in Europe. The Curtises, like Mrs. Bronson, were welcoming and famously hospitable to the artists and writers that were now landing in Venice— the Curtises wasted no time and rented the great Palazzo Barbaro as their home for the next four years, buying it outright in 1885. The palazzo remains today the property of the Curtis family as it has been for over a hundred years. When the Curtises took up residence, the palazzo was in a dismal state of repair. Originally home to the powerful Barbaro family in the 15th century and following the fall of the Republic in the 18th century, the Palazzo passed through a number of owners who chipped away at the guilt and sold off much of the furniture and interior decorations to waiting art dealers and collectors. A great ceiling decoration brilliantly painted by Tiepolo, which once adorned a room in the Barbaro, can now be seen today in the collection of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. The Curtises began to restore the vast palace, which Henry described as, despite its decay, all marble and frescoes and portraits of the doges. Isabella Stewart Gardner, the great art collector and patron, fell in love with the Barbaro as well before renting it herself, as we will see. A biographer of Gardner's, Louise Tharp gives us an image of a summer evening in the salon at the Barbaro. The murky tide below threw green and gold reflections on the ceiling. Plaster cupids disported themselves at the cornice wherever cupids could perch or fly. All was white or faded gold, but for the dark paintings. Crystal chandeliers and great candelabra standing on the floor held hundreds of candles, and the servants gasped in shocked delight when Mrs. Gardner ordered all the candles lighted every night as for a festa. The group that came in and out of the Barbaro and that were entertained by the Curtises, aside from those that we've mentioned, included poet Robert Browning, who lived in his own palazzo just down the canal. The art historian Bernard Berenson, painter William Merritt Chase, Swedish portraitist Anders Zorn, the great Claude Monet, Harvard art historian Charles Eliot Norton, and the American writer Edith Wharton. By now, James was feeling a deep connection to Venice, to the city to be sure, but also to the community that he was finding here, and he created two great works using Venice as a backdrop. While Henry James wrote a number of articles and essays of his impressions and recollections of Venice, perhaps Venice lives most vividly in two of his most famous works a novella of gothic suspense, The Aspern Papers, published in 1888, and one of his more acclaimed novels, The Wings of the Dove, published in 1902. The Aspern Papers, published in the Atlantic Monthly, tells the story of a young New York publisher and scholar and his quest for a cache of deeply intimate letters written by his long-dead subject, the poet Jeffrey Aspern. He believes Aspirin's aging mistress, Juliana Bordereau, living in near seclusion with her niece in an empty old Venetian palazzo, still has the letters in her possession. By posing as a renter, he is determined to become close to the old woman and manipulate her into giving him access to the papers. All does not go as planned, but that, my listeners, I leave to you to discover. The novella creates a level of tense Gothic suspense that James was to use brilliantly ten years later in the turn of the screw. The Aspirin Papers was based on a true story. While spending time in Florence early in 1887, Henry met a particular Contessa through his friendship with British writer Violet Paget, known to most as Vernon Lee. The Contessa, a descendant of Lord Byron's mistress, claimed to have a collection of, as they were called, shocking and unprintable, unknown letters from Byron. And she told James that she had, in fact, already burned one of them to prevent its contents from ever being known. James was deeply fascinated with this story and began to think about his own adaptation, and he began to sketch it out, moving the action of his story to Venice. James began to sketch out the aspirin papers not in Venice at all, but when he was staying in the hills above Florence in the spring of 1887. He finished writing it months later as a guest at the Barbaro. The idea of secrets and revelations in hidden letters is a curious one for James in general. Many writers struggle with how to control the narrative of their lives once they have passed on and dread the idea of previously unknown facts perhaps better kept hidden coming to light. Henry James himself burned great amounts of his own correspondence in his later years and was known to have marked his own letters to friends and intimates with the instruction, burn this, after they had read his letter. In the Aspirin papers, James captures much of the character of Venice, but we also find portraits of several of those in his life at this time. Knowing a bit of the backstory, as we've been discussing here, we see Mrs. Bronson likely turn up as our unnamed narrator's Venice contact, Mrs. Prest. Much of the psychological energy in the novella surrounds the notion of delving into a long-ago life to uncover the truth. It's been suggested that in his narrator, James perhaps may have portrayed parts of himself. It is thought that the palazzo that served as his model for that of the fictional Giuliana Bordero was not the Barbaro, but more clearly that of the 16th century Palazzo Soranzo Capelli owned by his friend, American writer Julia Constance Fletcher, and still remains tucked away on a side canal in Venice today. The character of Miss Tita, Juliana Bordereau's niece, is considered to be another portrait taken from a real-life connection and friendship of Henry's, a relationship that ended for him in deep tragedy and sadness. Constance Fenimore Wilson was an American novelist, short story writer, and poet. A writer mostly forgotten today, she remains recognized through her name as the grand-niece of famed American writer James Fenimore Cooper, author of historical romances, including the classic The Last of the Mohicans. Constance was born in New England but raised in Ohio. Upon her father's death when she was nearly 30, she began to write and she published several early attempts at fiction and essays in the Atlantic Monthly and Harper's Magazine. In 1879, she left America and settled in Europe and focused on her work as a novelist, writing about the South, her native Great Lakes region, as well as the cultural and social differences between America and Europe. Constance Wilson very much wanted to meet Henry James. She had hoped to meet him when she first arrived in London in 1879, but was unsuccessful. Here in Italy, years later, as both Henry and Constance circulated in Florence's expatriate community, they finally met the following year. He enjoyed her company, they shared the passion of being writers, but James notes again and again, even though young, she had a difficulty with her hearing that made long conversations difficult. They had reconnected that spring of 1887 in Florence and made a plan to share a villa in the hill town of Bellesguardo some peace and quiet for them both, with living arrangements, to be sure, on separate floors. Constance was 40 years old, unmarried, and in somewhat delicate health. She was a chronic depressive and sought the recuperative sunshine of the Italian hills. Henry's relationship with Constance was thought thoroughly platonic. He thought her spinsterish, but enjoyed her warm personality. He admired her intelligence and her writing. Biographers have suggested that she became attracted to, and was more than slightly, in love with him. Nonetheless, as they cohabitated that spring, she was able to rest, and he was able to write. It seems much of James' portrayal of Miss Tita, the maiden niece of Juliana Bordereau in the Aspirin Papers, is a portrait of Constance Wilson. But the story of Constance Fenimore Wilson was to take a dramatic and dark turn with Henry as a bystander, a moment which affected his relationship with Venice for the rest of his life. Henry had been making regular trips to Venice as the prized guest of not only the Curtises but also his friend Isabella Stewart Gardner when she rented the Barbaro from the Curtises for her summer residencies. But a trip he was forced to make in 1894 was unexpected, and not for pleasure. Constance Wilson had moved to Venice in May of 1993 and eventually established herself on the top floor of a palazzo close to the old familiar haunt of the Bronsons. Shortly after midnight on January 24, 1894, Constance fell from the window of her upper floor bedroom onto the stones below. Was it a suicide? Or had she just fallen? She had reported being depressed in spirits in previous days and had been bedridden with a high fever. Only days before, in fact, she had asked a servant to help her make her will. Help arrived to take her body from the pavement and bring her upstairs to her bedroom and to the care of a doctor. But just a few hours later, Constance Fenimore Wilson was dead. Henry learned the news that had been cabled to England, and he wrote immediately in a letter to Mrs. Bronson. I can't, while the freshness of misery is in the air, feel anything but that Venice is not a place I want immediately to see. I had known Miss Wilson for many years and was extremely attached to her. She was the gentlest and tenderest of women, and full of intelligence and sympathy. It has been suggested that Henry's profound emotions toward Venice at this moment came from feelings of guilt over an attraction that he did not or perhaps could not ever return. Writers have suggested that there was a level of confessional intimacy between Henry and Constance, and he knew that she kept the practice of saving all her correspondence. Henry quickly proposed he come to Venice in the spring to help Constance's sister sort through her belongings and papers. He stayed over five weeks, not with Mrs. Bronson or the Curtises, but on his own at a hotel. He and Constance's sister made decisions on the remains of her literary and personal legacy, preparing boxes of her belongings to be sent back to America. In one deeply intimate and poignant act, Henry James rowed himself alone out to the far reaches of the lagoon and, per Constance's specific request, committed her garments and wardrobe to the sea. It has been suggested that perhaps some of Constance's papers and letters containing far too intimate details exchanged during their friendship fell to the bottom of the lagoon as well. Before he left Europe, he traveled down to Rome to pay his respects at Constance's grave, which he found, as had been her wish, in the Protestant cemetery. Henry James did not return to Venice for the next five years. And with that, I'm going to take a short break. But I'll be back to continue on with our story.
0: You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring... The Kardashians, of course, and Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new, and it's streaming now on Hulu.
1: If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is,
0: I don't want my problems to burden anyone.
2: Or you
1: say,
0: Hang it in there.
2: Because, If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak
1: then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel.
2: And we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast As we've noted, Venice drew other artists, particularly painters during those late years of the 19th century. It was the light, of course, but most often it was that unique way that light played off the water surrounding Venice that gave off golden and jewel-like reflections as it played on the crumbling walls of Palazzi and churches and canals. American-born painter James Abbott McNeill Whistler, known for the famous portrait of his mother, properly called Portrait in Gray and Black, landed in Venice in September of 1879. He was a distant relation of Catherine Decay Bronson. At this moment in his life, Whistler was in a near-penniless state, but had fortunately received a commission to create twelve etchings of Venice that upon his return would be exhibited by his sponsor, London's Fine Art Society. Whistler, by many accounts, had a challenging personality. It's been reported that he could be witty, eccentric, and deeply caustic. But as it did for Henry James, Venice seems to have taken him by surprise— and to have found its way deeply into his blood. Whistler rented a studio in the palatial 18th-century Carazonico, like the Barbaro, a grand palace where artists could rent studio space on the upper floors. Whistler planned to stay in Venice for three months to complete his commission. He stayed 14. What captured Whistler's eye and skill was the atmosphere of Venice— He was not interested in complete, faithful depictions of the Doge's Palace or San Marco, but rather moments in a Venetian day. Images of boats scattered under the Rialto Bridge, a gondola quietly moored in front of an elegant palazzo entrance, a group of local women going about their work on undefined steps somewhere in the city. A cavernous passageway occupied by several beggars, A dark and moody scene of a dusky Venice at night with tiny dots of light in the distance reflected on the water. Setting off in a gondola each morning with his box of pastels, he went in search of moments to capture what came to him often unexpectedly. As he wrote, Venice is an impossible place to sit down and sketch. There's always something better around the corner. Whistler's time in Venice he left in the early autumn of 1880 had been one of the most inspiring and creative periods of his life. He produced two oil paintings, over a hundred sketches, and instead of only his originally commissioned twelve, he brought home fifty etchings, the finest of which were indeed exhibited upon his return to London. During Whistler's time in Venice, he too became part of the circle that had welcomed James and centered around the Curtises and the Palazzo Barbaro. After his stay of a little over a year, he left and never returned. The summer before Whistler left Venice, another painter well acquainted with the city arrived to spend some time. John Singer Sargent, born of American parents but raised and based in Europe throughout most of his life, had known Venice since he was a small child. Arriving this time in the summer of 1880, when he was 24 years old, this was his fifth trip to La Serenissima. Having studied in the private salon of Carolus Duran in Paris, Sargent's talent was becoming widely known and widely discussed. Mary Cassatt noted his talent. Rodin called him a contemporary Van Dyck. And Henry James himself remarked that Sargent has A slightly uncanny spectacle of a talent that on the very threshold of a career has nothing more to learn. Perception with him is a form of execution. It's been suggested that Sargent's work bore some influence from Whistler, who was more than 20 years his senior. Sargent, too, was interested in an untraditional side of Venice, similar to that that had intrigued Whistler. He painted the working class instead of painting Palazzi. He gives us a scrap of a wall, a darkened Venetian street leading off into obscurity, a dead end alley, a grey day showing a slender partial view of the docks, an intimate view of Venetian glass workers whose solitary craft occurs in a dark space with bursts of light and heat. John Singer Sargent was a friend of the Curtis's son Ralph. Daniel Curtis was Sargent's father's first cousin. In addition to staying at the Barbaro with the Curtises many times on his stays to Venice, he captured the Curtises into well-known paintings. One was painted in 1882, the year following the Curtises taking up residence at the Barbaro. It is a relatively standard Sargent portrait. Mrs. Curtis, Ariana, is painted from the shoulders up and she looks off to the left, not directly at us, the viewer, and her face is highlighted by her pale complexion and her lace cap. Her pearls stand out around her neck. Sargent was fond of calling Mrs. Curtis the dogeressa. The second and more famous of the two paintings can be found in the collection of London's Royal Academy of Arts and is titled Interior in Venice. It was painted in 1899. This work portrays not only Daniel and Ariana Curtis in casual poses in the Barbaro's Great Salon, but also shows Ralph and his wife Lisa. It is a stunning portrait of the room behind them as well. Here, Sargent lets the light reflect off the canal below and highlights the gilt moldings of the wall and ceiling and catches the crystal of the chandelier before the room disappears into darkness. After his visit, during which he painted this work, Sargent returned to Venice nine more times, but after 1913, he did not return at all. He died in 1925. Sargent felt that the city was changing rapidly and becoming overrun by tourists from London and elsewhere, but he had been deeply influenced by the city. Several of his most important shows, one at the Paris Salon, as well as his first solo show in Boston in 1888, contained work from his time in Venice. Before we return to Henry James and perhaps his greatest memorial tribute to Venice, we must drop in on Isabella Stuart Gardner and look at her role in cementing the Barbaro Circle. Gardner played a significant role certainly in the lives of Henry James, John Singer Sargent, and Whistler— and they played important roles in hers. Isabella was to visit both Sargent and Whistler in London and at various times bought pieces of their work. Following her viewing of Sargent's famed portrait of Amalie Gautier, known as Madame X, in his studio, Isabella asked him to paint his famous portrait of her. They were to become close friends for the rest of their lives. Isabella Stewart Gardner first saw Venice in 1884 as she and her husband Jack were concluding a trip through Asia and the East, a journey that included China and Cambodia. Isabella's first impressions of Venice were unique. She arrived in Venice from the East, not directly from Western Europe or America. As a result, an Eastern sensibility was fresh in her consciousness and gave her a unique lens to see the city for the first time. That sense of the East blending with the West is one of the keys to understanding the layers of the city and its history. Even today, one just has to enter the dark, mystical interior of San Marco and look up at the golden Byzantine domes disappearing into shadow to see that. Venice, throughout its history, has been a synthesis of both East and West, and that connection is everywhere in its architecture and design. Isabella knew the Curtises from Boston connections, and she too fell in love with the Barbaro. Isabella and Jack began to rent the Barbaro on a two-year cycle during the summers when the Curtises had left Venice. Henry James was a regular visitor, and Isabella made up the library for him by famously bringing in an elaborately carved bed with pink mosquito netting to convert the room to his suite. Isabella, furthermore, went to the trouble of having slits of paper inserted into the window blinds to keep the midday sun out and ensure Henry was cool. Jack Gardner kept notes in a daily diary and we learned that having tea in their gondola as they glided through the canals became a daily ritual. Isabella brought even more artists into her circle, including the Swedish portraitist Anders Zorn, who memorialized Isabella in his famous portrait of her bursting into the Barbaro Sala from the balcony dressed in white with her long pearls draped around her neck. It was said Isabella's famous pearls never glowed as brightly as when they caught the light of candles on a summer night in Venice. After his emotional stay in Venice following Constance Wilson's death, Henry James did indeed return to Venice and, as we've noted, continued as a guest of the Curtises and then Isabella Stewart Gardner. James had captured Venice in multiple essays and, as I mentioned earlier in his novella, The Aspirin Papers. However, it was in his 1902 novel The Wings of the Dove, which many consider to be his masterpiece, that he perhaps offers his greatest tribute to the city that he loved for so long. It's often stated that Henry James wrote The Wings of the Dove during his stays at the Palazzo Barbaro, and while it seems that he made some sketches for it there, he in fact wrote most of it in his home at Lamb's House in Rye, England. The Wings of the Dove is a novel telling the story of two young Londoners, Merton Densher and Kate Croy, deeply in love but prevented from marrying due to a lack of resources on both sides. They make the acquaintance of a young, beautiful, and mortally ill-American heiress, Millie Thiel, whom they follow to Venice. In The Wings of the Dove, we see some of James' most intimate portraits of people he knew and the city he loved. It's been suggested that Millie Thiel is a character inspired by his own dear and beloved cousin, Minnie Temple, who had died from tuberculosis years before. The great Palazzo Leparelli that Millie rents in Venice is an accurate stand-in for the Palazzo Barbaro, and indeed James recounts Millie tracing the medallions on the ceiling with her eyes in the diffused light as he himself did on so many Venetian mornings. Millie dies in Venice, ultimately taken by her illness. In life, as well as in his fiction, Venice could be, for Henry James, a city of death. Henry James was to visit Venice only once more in 1907. It was the end of a grander tour throughout Italy. His last views of Venice were so different from the city that he had known over 30 years before. The city that brought life had also brought death, and as we have briefly discussed, he had captured it in his writing, and it's been suggested in so doing, perhaps, exorcised some demons. Over the 38 years since he had first seen the domes of San Marco, the gleaming white of the Salute, or the Campanile and Palladian facade of San Giorgio Maggiore, both he and the city, one could say, had changed. In coming back to the city after his absence, however, James seems to have made peace with the darker meanings that Venice represented for him, and somehow a bit of the old allure broke through, and he wrote, Never has the place seemed to me sweeter, clearer, diviner. Henry James leaves us with a number of unanswered questions. A writer can certainly control the content of their published work to a point. However, personal notes and correspondence are quite something else. There are just some things we may never quite know. Both the papers of the fictional Geoffrey Aspern and much of the correspondence of James himself went up in thin plumes of inky smoke. Henry James had loved Venice. It had brought him close to art, into an artistic circle, and likely deeper into himself, an unsettling place, though that might have been. In his essay, Venice, which he wrote in 1882 during his first long stay, he tells us the only way to care for Venice, as she deserves it, is to give her the chance to touch you often, to linger and remain and return. As I looked down at the Great Palazzo Barbaro on that breezy New Year's Day standing on the Academia Bridge, I was curious to find out more about this great palazzo and the artistic circle of late 19th century Venice that was centered right there. When Venice awoke from its holiday revelries a couple of days later, I searched out a copy of Henry James' Letters from the Palazzo Barbaro in a bookshop. This insightful collection compiled in the late 1990s brings together letters to his family, Isabella Stewart Gardner, the Curtises, and others, and gives an intimate portrait of how James felt about the city over time. As I was leaving the bookshop, I stumbled on a bit of old, uneven pavement, and I dropped my book, and it fell, cover down, right into a Venetian puddle. Was this a message that Henry did not want me to delve into his secrets? I cherish that battered copy to this day. The cover is faded, the pages are all warped from being soaked through and then dried. But it was his letters from the Palazzo Barbaro that launched the beginning of my journey to try to understand what this city had meant to Henry James and how a bit of that could translate to my own personal story. By looking back into the past, I began to understand why just so many of us, despite the crowds, souvenir vendors, and the modern buildings and technologies, can still fall helplessly under La Serenissima's spell. Thank you for joining me for another episode of The Gilded Gentleman. The Gilded Gentleman is produced by Bowery Boys Media, and this episode was edited and produced by Kieran Gannon. I invite listeners to become patrons of the show on patreon.com slash gentleman. Your support helps me with the cost of research and production to continue to be able to do the show. I couldn't do it without you. And I'll see you soon. After all, what's life without a little glint of gold?
1: If a friend asks how you're doing